Hello, I'm William Henry, and along with Michael and Sylvia Penny, we're planning to investigate some of the key areas of the book of Ecclesiastes in this series of podcasts. And in this session, we'll begin by picking up on Solomon's purposes in writing the book. So why did he write it then, Mike? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says he is trying to find out what is good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. On the first part of the book, up to chapter 6, verse 12, I think it is, that really covers his search for what is good. Yes, but it's a vain search because in chapter 6 he concludes, who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. But then in the rest of the book, he tries to make a bit more sense of it all. Okay then, so what sort of things does he cover in the first part of the book then? Well, in the, in the first two chapters he goes through various approaches to life. The way of wisdom, then the way of pleasure, the way of laughter. And drunkenness, oh dear. Then the spending of his wealth on great projects, and on women too. But he concludes that all of these, including the works that he had done, all of these were meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Yes, that phrase occurs five times in the first two chapters. But he, he picks up that idea again, and doesn't he, in chapter four? Yes, there he looks at the problem of oppression in the world, the fact that some people are poor and some are rich, but sometimes the rich people do not have the ability to enjoy their wealth, and other people end up enjoying their riches instead. This too, he says, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But it's all very well to keep saying that everything is meaningless. Does he see why it's meaningless? Well, we touched on this in our last podcast. It's because life is transient. And there is uncertainty introduced by the fact of death. Solomon says the same fate overtakes both the wise and the foolish. It's chapter 2, verses 14, and again at the end of chapter 3. So what's the point of wisdom? Also, if you spend your life working and accumulating wealth, who's going to get it after you're gone? They may squander it and destroy your life's work. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, this question, what is good it's one which philosophers have asked over the centuries, haven't they? Man's search for the best way to live. Yeah, you're right there. And in fact, the modern day philosopher, Anthony Grayling, who is an atheist, wrote a book entitled What is Good? I think that came out about 2003. The answer he gives at the end of his book is this. To the question, what is good? The answer can only be the considered life. Free, creative, informed and chosen. A life of achievement and fulfilment, of pleasure and understanding, of love. In short, the best human life in a human world, humanly lived. A life of achievement. Many mm -hmm. people would feel that they didn't achieve very much, wouldn't they? I'd like mm -hmm. to know what he means by achievement. However, I mean, I think he... He does include a number of things which you might regard as praiseworthy in that summary, particularly love and friendship. But is that the best answer to the question, what is good? I mean, what do you think, Sylvia? Well, he and other atheistic philosophers 
don't take much account of the twin facts of evil and death in the world when they discuss this question. Yeah, but Solomon does in Ecclesiastes, doesn't he? Oh, yes. <laughs> he sees how these two, evil and death, affect the whole of life negatively. So that, as a consequence, is, well, life makes no sense and gives little satisfaction. Thus, when Solomon asks the question, what is good? Although he asks it primarily in the context of this life, as we see, for example, in places like um, Ecclesiastes 2.13 and 6.12, where he refers to this life, it is nevertheless clear he believes in life after death. Yes, he does. And he touches on this in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10, where he talks about the burden God has laid on men. But in the next verse, he goes on to say that God has set eternity in their hearts, which is a very interesting statement. Yes, it is. And we certainly are creatures of time and space. And yet we have a yearning for something higher, a longing for meaning and significance, a longing for eternity, a desire to live forever. If there is nothing after death, then Solomon's conclusion that everything under the sun is transient and meaningless does make a lot of sense, you know. Okay, then. So the big question is, of course, is Ecclesiastes a negative book then, moaning about the fact that life is meaningless because it's temporary and everything is transient? Or is it a positive book which shows that life without God, without eternal life to follow, is meaningless? But with God, life does have a purpose. Those are interesting questions. It seems on the one hand, if we try to find meaning in something that is temporary, it's doomed to failure. On the other hand, if we have hope in something eternal that lasts forever, that not only gives meaning and purpose to our transient life here under the sun, but it also counteracts the effect of death. Yeah, in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon mentions both death and the judgment to follow. Therefore, by inference, he believed in the resurrection. And much of what he says has to be understood in this context. His major argument is that without God, without life after death, this earthly life is transient, a passing temporal state. For Solomon, without the context of resurrection and eternal life, this present life is not permanent and so has little purpose or meaning. Mind you, we can get some pleasure from work or leisure activities or by planning and executing projects that we set for ourselves. But in the end, from our own perspective, none of it is permanent. It's all passing and so it's all meaningless. So it's only when we bring God into the equation that life has any real meaning. So if we read Ecclesiastes in the light of resurrection and in the light of life after death, we will view what is said differently from what will happen if we read it with the idea that we only have this life only. Yes, it's interesting when you look at Solomon's conclusion at the end of the book. There, you see, he concludes with the most important truth of all in chapter 12, verse 13, when he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right. And we talked about fear of God, of course, didn't we, in the second of our podcasts on wisdom? Yes, you did. It was entitled Knowledge and the Fear of the Lord. 
there you explain that the fear of God, which really means being in awe of God or revering God, was the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. Okay, that sounds all very well, but what do you think revering God means on a day-by-day basis? I mean, presumably it means more than not swearing or not taking the Lord's name in vain, though presumably, obviously, it does include that. Yeah. Well, I think revering God means that we should try to obey him in all aspects of our lives. And what he says, we should try and do. And what and we should, well, I think we should take his revealed will as the main factor in our choices that we make. Our reverence for him shows itself in our obedience. Yes, Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. And that's in John 14, verse 15. We have to put him first in the choices we make in life. You know, As an old man, Solomon must have been only too well aware that although he'd been given this great wisdom by God, he'd not always been wise in some of his choices. That was the way I see it as the ultimate irony of Solomon's life, wasn't it? He knew Mm. what he should have done, but he hadn't done it. He actually knew what was good for a man, but he hadn't practiced it. It could be that one of the reasons for Ecclesiastes being included in the canon of Scripture, you know, was to serve as a warning to anyone who is tempted to go the same way as Solomon. This is why many people think that this book is very relevant to us in our modern world. In fact, probably much more relevant to us than to many previous societies. Yes, but when Solomon wrote this, he possibly had the young people of his kingdom in mind. No doubt it was intended as a warning to them not to work a path of human wisdom, but instead to live their lives by the revealed wisdom of God. That's a message that's very relevant for all people of all times and for us today. Yeah, it's interesting that idea of the young people, because Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs, didn't he? And a lot of that is giving advice to a young man. Yes, it is. Hmm. But coming back to this idea, though, of fearing God, one of the problems we have, I think, is understanding exactly what God is doing in the world and why certain things happen. Often we're mystified by why things happen. Solomon was a wise man. So what does he say about that? Well, in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 16 and 17, Solomon says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows it, he cannot really comprehend it. So then, effectively, Solomon was saying that even the greatest of philosophers, the greatest of scientific minds, even if they understand something, quite a lot about this world, they don't ever fully grasp everything that there is to know, and and neither can they fully explain it. More than anyone else, I suppose, Solomon had had kudos to say that because he'd been blessed with wisdom from God. Yeah. So, you know, science has made a lot of wonderful discoveries, but the more we know, the more we realise what we don't know. That's That's right. For example, no one really knows what dark matter is. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting that when Job questioned God about the thorny subject of suffering, God didn't give him a direct answer. He just asked Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. That's in Job chapter 38, verse 4. Yeah, and Habakkuk, when he questioned God, he received a similar answer. And I have dealt with this more fully in my booklet, Introducing the Prophecy of Habakkuk, which is published by the Open Bible Trust. But returning to Ecclesiastes in chapter 11, verse 5, it says, As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So Job and Habakkuk and Solomon all learned that same thing, that God is beyond all our understanding. Once Solomon came to that point, it's no wonder that he concluded the book of Ecclesiastes by saying that our duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. But he follows that uh, conclusion up by saying, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Judgment. Judgment has to do with resurrection, hasn't it? Mm. Because you can't be judged until after death. I think one of the hardest things that people have to deal with in life is death, isn't it? And one of the hardest things people struggle to comprehend is resurrection. I mean, the resurrection of people, not Christ's resurrection. So what does Ecclesiastes have to say about these things, death and resurrection? Mm, well, Ecclesiastes has quite a lot to say about death and the judgment to come. There must be a dozen or so passages which deal with those two subjects? Yes, some have said that Solomon was obsessed with death. The fact that we all die permeates the whole of Ecclesiastes. Let's look at some of the passages where Solomon wrote about death. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 11 we read, There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Yep, and here's another. Uh, this one comes from Ecclesiastes 2, 14 to 16. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this, is, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be remembered long. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. And he comes back to the idea of not being remembered. And he seems to be saying, if we are not remembered, then what is the point of life? But of course, we, we are remembered, maybe not by our fellow human beings, but by God. But anyway, maybe we'll come back to that later. Let's look at another one. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 19 to 20 states, Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Okay, these passages are all relating to death. What about resurrection? Well, in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 6 to 7, we read, 
Remember him, that is your creator, before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. When we read all these verses, one after another, many of them give an impression of depression and despair. And yet that last one contains a glimmer of hope. Yeah, but hang on a minute. All, all that verse is saying about the spirit returning to God that gave it, that's the spirit. That's the breath of life. That's not resurrection. Oh, yeah, that's true. In fact, Solomon never refers directly to the idea of resurrection, but it is implied when he mentions both judgment and eternity. I think that even though he only writes a few verses that refer to life after death, they put his many verses on death and its effects into a context. They leave the reader with the impression that Solomon has more hope and expectation for a future life than is apparent at first sight. Okay, can you give me an example of that? Well, one passage like that is Ecclesiastes 3, verses 10 to 17, which is rather long, but I'll read it. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. So then, although we have the burden of living in a fallen world and we can't really understand everything that God is doing in the world, he's really asking us to trust him. He's set eternity into our hearts and what he wants us to do is find satisfaction in this world, in the place he has put us, and he wants us to do good with our eyes set on eternity. Yeah, yeah. That, that's like what the Old Testament prophet Micah says. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's a lovely verse from Micah 6, 8. Yes, but hold on a bit. Solomon's not finished. He continues in chapter 3. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever whatever is has already been, and what will be what will and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there and I thought in my heart God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked for there will be a time for every activity a time for every deed so he talks about everything that God does enduring forever and I suppose that's rather a contrast from that word vanity which is used about the temporary nature of everything to do with man under the sun Yeah, and he says that at future judgment, God will take everything into account, both good and bad, for everyone who has lived. This certainly implies resurrection. Good. Any other passages where he talks about judgment? 
Yes, he refers to the future judgment of man, again in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9, where he says, Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Again, his advice is to enjoy this present world as far as we are able, but with the knowledge that what people do will all be judged by God. So whatever our enjoyment consists of, it should be underpinned by the fear of the Lord. Okay, so how can we pull all these ideas together then? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon shows that if each if we see each day of our life as a gift and appreciate our food and drink, our work, our wealth and possessions, and our position or power in society, if we have any, if we see all these as gifts from God, and if we accept whatever we're given with gladness and satisfaction, then we will live a full life in thankfulness to God. Yeah, it kind of sounds terribly middle class, though, doesn't it? I mean, there are millions of people today who can't find work, or at least can't find meaningful work, and who are really struggling to make ends meet. I think that in our own country, the growth in the, the usage of food banks really shows that many people are finding life very difficult at the moment, and they don't have much in the way of wealth and possessions. So how do they fit into Solomon's scheme of things? I think that if we are in that situation, that's all the more reason to realise our dependence on God to supply our needs. The secret is being content in every situation. Paul really brings this out in Philippians 4, verses 12 to 13, when he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or I'm in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Right. I think the key is in that last phrase. I can do all this, everything I'm called to want to do through him who gives me strength. Yeah. Paul was able to do all he was called upon to do through the Lord's strengthening. Okay. So if we recognize that everything we have comes from the Lord and he is in control, then we can learn contentment like Paul in every situation whether in wealth or in poverty. It's interesting that Paul says he's learned contentment in every situation, not necessarily contentment with every situation. And he was in prison when he wrote Philippians. He wanted to be released. Contentment doesn't mean we can't want to change our situation for the better. However, on the other hand, if we try to find satisfaction without God, we will find it much harder to give meaning to our lives, even if we have an abundance of material possessions and high prestige. Agreed. So the ultimate answer to the question posed by Solomon, what is good for man, is not just enjoying this present life to the full, but it's enjoying it, recognising God's place in our lives, and also bearing in mind the future better life to come. So in the things we do and how we live, we must always remember that we are going to be called to account for them. Therefore, I think the philosopher Anthony Grayling's answer to the question, what is good, which we mentioned earlier, only gave half the answer. 
We should enjoy this present life to the full, as he said, but we should do so only in the context of knowing that the best life, eternal life with God, is yet to come. Okay, so let's now summarize some of what we've seen in Ecclesiastes. In his investigation of what is good, Solomon looks at searching after pleasure, which I think is something people today are trying to experience as much as possible. Then he looks at wisdom and folly, which is the path that modern philosophers might follow. And then he looks at the merits of work, which is something that ambitious people and workaholics would identify with today. But then he goes on to his conclusion. He points out three facts. First, that people do not really know what leads to a good and contented life. And secondly, they do not always have the wisdom to follow a path that leads to fulfillment. And third, they do not always know what the future will bring. And as a result of these three facts, the best life under the sun is one which is governed by the fear of the Lord, because we have to be mindful that there will be a final judgment of everyone who has ever lived, and this will be carried out by the Lord. Yes, it, yes, it's important to see the way Solomon finishes the book. In his final verse, he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether it is good or evil. Yeah, that's something I think we all need to remember, isn't it? So then, we've looked at some of the broad themes of Ecclesiastes. The next time we'll start focusing in detail on particular topics within the book, and we'll begin with looking at time and eternity. So thank you very much for listening.